Amen. Thank you, Pastor David. Miss Pat, as always, we'll open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Today we'll continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount by examining the seriousness of sin or the sinfulness of sin. You know, we have a real problem in our culture, if you didn't know, uh, on the view of sin or the lack thereof. Uh, from defining what sin is to understanding the seriousness that God takes when it comes to sin. Last year, there was a survey done, and I've mentioned this before, by Ligonier Ministries along with Lifeway. Uh, This study showed that 66% of Americans believed that, quote, sure, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature, end quote. Well, we know the Bible unequivocally teaches that by nature we're not good. By nature, the Bible says we're children of wrath and that there's none who does good, not even one, according to Romans 3 and Psalm 14. And that our hearts are only evil continually, Genesis 6, 5. But 66% of Americans think that people are pretty good by nature. Uh, So we would think that among evangelicals, this number would be better. Evangelicals who hold uh, to the salvation of faith in Christ alone, the authority of Scripture. Uh, Evangelicals who believe in the authority of Scripture, bodily resurrection. Uh, We would think that the percentages would actually be a little bit better, but unfortunately that's not the case. According to this study, only 57% of professing evangelicals either somewhat agreed or strongly agreed with that statement that, sure, everyone sins a little, but everyone is good by nature. Furthermore, only 55% of evangelicals believe that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. And finally, listen to this one. 61% of evangelicals strongly agree Not just somewhat, but they strongly agree that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God, which directly contradicts and conflicts the clear teaching of Scripture. Now, what I thought was interesting in that same question, that everyone's born innocent in the eyes of God, while 61% of evangelicals strongly agree, total respondents, only 54% strongly agree agreed with that statement. Only 54% agreed that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. And evangelicals, a greater percentage. You get what I'm saying? Uh, So the world seems to understand the fallenness of man a little bit more than evangelicals. Having the wrong view of sin and its consequences has had a devastating effect upon the culture, upon the church, upon families, And upon souls. A wrong view of sin in the pulpit leads people straight to hell, leads families to ruin, and is leading our country further into God's judgment. Churches and pastors have departed from the sufficiency of Scripture and have created a Jesus in their own imagination, a Jesus made in their own likeness, who at best winks at sin and at worst, affirms and celebrates it. Well, it's no wonder why the church and Christians seem to have no power to advance the gospel. It's no wonder why Christians have no power to raise godly seeds and see them grow in the faith for the next generation. It's no wonder why Christians have no power to have flourishing and successful marriages that reflect the gospel to the world. It's because we don't understand the sinfulness of sin. We don't even understand what sin is. But because our natural tendency is to downplay sin, we must be diligent to both understand the seriousness of sin and to deal with it quickly, drastically, and without reserve. Then and only then can we fulfill our Christian duty, walk in peace, and portray the glory of God in our lives. And Jesus provides us with words today that speak to the heart of this issue. 
So let's look at our text. We're in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start at verse 29 and read 29 and 30. And the word of the Lord says, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. If your right eye makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that we can stand before you, God, by the work of Christ. Now we can enter into your presence, into the throne room of grace. Father, we pray now, God, that you would use the words and hear your inspired, inerrant word. That you would use it, Father, to grow us in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You would use it to conform us to your image. Use, us, use it, Lord, to save those who are outside of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start out by showing you what Jesus is not saying in this text. Uh, the first thing is that Jesus is not saying that we need to physically mutilate our bodies uh, to, to get rid of sin to go to heaven. I hope that we all have that understanding, but I just wanted to make that point, especially the younger minds when they hear something like that and they think, oh, I, I have to do this in order to, to not go to hell and to go to heaven. But that's not what Jesus um, is saying, and that would be impossible anyway for a few reasons. Uh, Jesus just gave two examples about how sin is a matter of the heart. Uh, when he talked about anger, anger being as the sin of murder and adultery in the heart being the same as overt adultery. So Jesus isn't talking about physically mutilating your body to get rid of sin because that would be impossible anyway because sin is a matter of the heart. Um, also, Jesus affirms elsewhere that sin is not a matter of external challenges with our members of our body, but it's an internal thing. It, it proceeds out of the heart. Mark 7, 21 and 23, Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile uh, the man. So Jesus, Jesus is not saying to get rid of your sin, you've got to go pluck your eye or cut your right hand off or do any type of self-flagellation is what it's called uh, to, in order to go to heaven or to get rid of your sin. Uh, this is actually what drove uh, the reformer Martin Luther before his conversion, almost drove him to insanity because he would take texts like this uh, literal. And he sought to inflict pain upon himself in his monastic life. When he was a, a monk, he thought he had to uh, inflict pain upon his body to rid himself of sin in order to be good enough and righteous enough uh, to go to heaven. In fact, later on in his life, uh, he said, if there ever was a monk that got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. I mean, the people in his monastery thought he would end up killing himself. That's how much he would... Uh, make his body suffer. Luther, as a monk, practiced severe forms of self-flagellation, including acts of sleeping naked in the snow, sleeping naked in the snow, or whipping himself to the point of severe bleeding. Luther, at the time, thought this was the way to mortify the flesh, to get rid of himself of the sin in order to obtain paradise. Even after all that, he would write later on that it brought him no peace, but made his guilt worse. And it ended up causing him to hate the very righteousness of God. And the doors of paradise remained closed. Now, Luther's view of sin was actually not far off. He had trained as an attorney. He understood that there was a righteous, objective standard and that he was falling short of it. And he was doing the only way he was taught to rid himself of that sin because he knew that he needed holiness to obtain eternal life. 
So he had the right view of sin and the right view of God and his holiness, but he had the wrong view of salvation and how to be or have the righteousness in order to obtain the kingdom of God. And it was not until the Lord used Luther's studies in the original language in the book of Romans where he understood that it was saving faith and becoming born again through faith alone in Christ alone to obtain the perfect righteousness of Christ that he was trying to obtain on his own good works and his uh, self-flagellation and all of the things he did to his body. Uh, He knew that it was by faith alone at that point, trust in God alone to get the perfect righteousness of Christ, and that, he said, opened the doors of paradise uh, to him. So Jesus in our text is not saying we need to do physical things to our body to get rid of our sin. Uh, It may not even be physically harming things. People at times have thought, you know, if I just stay away from people, if I just go and isolate myself away from the sinful things of the world, then I can get rid of the sin. But guess what? When you get rid of the people of the world, guess what you're still left with? You're still left with your own depraved heart. So you can't get rid of sin by doing anything physical to yourself to do that. Uh, Jesus here in this text is not giving us a passage on how to be saved. This is not a soteriological passage. Uh, uh, It's not that at all. In other texts, it's crystal clear, even in Jesus' own words, on salvation through faith alone. John 6, 28 and 29 is one perfect example uh, where some came to him and said, what shall we do to do the works of God? God? And Jesus said, Uh, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So he said, you want to do the works to to go to heaven? Here's the work. Believe in the one who sent me. Believe in me. John 3, uh, 15 says, So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Not may have, not can have, But whoever believes, Jesus says, will have eternal life. So what is Jesus saying here? We're not to inflict pain upon our body, get rid of sin. What is Jesus saying here? Well, the overarching doctrine with this hyperbole that Jesus is using is because sin is such a serious issue. Jesus is communicating that sin is such a serious issue that it must be dealt with quickly, drastically, and without reserve. And I'll repeat that. Because sin is such a serious issue, it must be dealt with quickly, drastically, and without reserve. Jesus is using this graphic hyperbole to communicate how serious sin is. And sin left undealt with, will lead you straight to hell. Sin left undealt with will lead you straight to hell. This is not the only time that Jesus uses this hyperbole. And I want to clarify, when I'm in, when sin is left undealt with, I mean that in a habitual way. When someone's living a life of unrepentant sin and they never deal with their sin holistically, I'm not talking about one little sin here, one little sin there, but when somebody doesn't deal with their sin holistically and they live a life of unrepentant sin, that will lead them straight to hell. Jesus uses this hyperbole two other times. Once in Mark 9 and once in Matthew 8, verses 8 through 9. In the context of both of those passages, uh, come out of disputes about the disciples who were arguing about who would be the greatest. And Jesus, using an example of a small child, shows who's greatest. And then he warns them about being a stumbling block to other believers. He says in Matthew 18, 7, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. But it, uh, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to the man through whom stumbling blocks come. And right then he uses that same hyperbole. If your right eye makes you to sin, cut it out. So different context and application, but the same premise. It's the same premise. Jesus is using 
this gruesome hyperbole to make the point that sin is a very serious issue, and you don't need to leave it undealt with. Now, what's the context of our passage in uh, Matthew chapter 5? What Jesus is addressing the issues of the heart, our motives. He's correcting the original intent of the law, or he's, he's correcting the pharisaical use of the law, and he's drawing out the original intent of the law. The passage here is directly following and preceding issues of adultery. He addresses motives of lust in the heart in verses 27 and 28, and I went through those a couple weeks ago. And remember, friends, that he's talking here, the crowd is both believers and unbelievers. We see this in the beginning of the sermon, where he said he was speaking to his disciples. But at the end of the sermon in verse chapter 7, verse 28, it says the crowds were amazed. So, these, so he's speaking to a mixed group. He's got his disciples of mostly believers, and then he has all these crowds, which for certain have a mixture of both believers and unbelievers. Well, why is that important? Well, I believe because this text is both applicable to believers and to unbelievers alike. Jesus here is taking the law and drawing out the original intentions that it's a matter of the heart. It's as if Jesus is using the law of God, which the Pharisees uh, adulterated that and made it into external legalism, It's as if Jesus is drawing out the original meaning that it's a matter of the heart. And here with this hyperbole, it's almost like he's bending back the bow of God's law and shooting it straight to pierce our heart. And that's what he's doing with this text. And he gives this bloody and gruesome picture of how serious we ought to think of sin. So serious that we would be willing to, Not that he's promoting this, but that we would be willing to take such drastic measures to deal with it, to get rid of it. And that leads me to my next point, is that sin must be dealt with quickly, drastically, and without reserve. So if you're taking notes, the first point in the text was that Jesus was using this hyperbole to communicate how serious sin is, the seriousness of sin. And second, sin must be dealt dealt with quickly, drastically, and without reserve. I want you to take a moment and just think about what Jesus is saying in this hyperbole. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble. Now, this word in the Greek could be as most often translated as a stumbling into sin. Okay, although it's used in other ways. Jesus has talked about his words, have my words caused you to stumble. He uses the same uh, Greek word. Most often it means a stumble into sin. So think about this just a moment. If your right eye makes you stumble, if your right eye causes you to stumble into sin, tear it out and throw it from you, he says. Or verse 30, if your right hand causes you to stumble into sin, take such drastic measures, he says, cut it off and throw it far from you. It's better for you to lose a part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And the text in in Mark, excuse me, he actually adds on to that, It's better for your whole body to go into hell where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. So that's another subordinate meaning to hell, meaning it's everlasting, it's eternal. But think about how gruesome that is for a minute. Think about actually seeing somebody ripping their eye out and blood just spilling all over the floor. Think about somebody trying to literally cut their hand off and blood all over the floor. Most of us live our lives where we never see that type of uh, gruesome. I mean, unless you've worked in a hospital or uh, maybe a police officer or in the military, most of us have never seen that type of uh, picture, right? When we see our kids in, in a massive cut and bleeding, 
uh, many of us parents right, started to get lightheaded, just a little bit of blood. Imagine the picture Jesus has given his audience of somebody literally ripping their eye out. And they would torture people this way, cutting their arm off or their hand off. But the idea here, folks, is that the person knows the problem. They know that it's the eye that is their problem. They've identified the problem, haven't they? And they don't keep lingering. It's almost as if the eye is the problem, it has a cancer, and if it's left undealt with, it's going to cause the whole body to die. And so the action is taken quickly, and it's drastic. It's immediately, it's without reserve. The, the problem's identified. The right eye is causing it, I'm cutting it off. The right hand is the problem, I'm cutting it off. So it's clear, the problem is, a clear, is clear, and the idea is that there's a whatever-it-takes attitude to get rid of the problem. Okay, so it, it's like if you find cancer in, in a certain area, you want to take immediate action because if you don't, it's going to grow and permeate and bring your whole body to ruin. And that's what Jesus is communicating here when it comes to sin, is that you need to identify it and you need to not let it linger. You need to take drastic measures. You need to do it quickly before it takes your whole body and your whole life down with you. Is that the view that you have of sin, brothers and sisters? Do you have the view of sin that you want to identify it quickly so that you can immediately take action drastically and take drastic measures and don't wait, don't linger and get rid of it because you know it displeases God? Is that how you view sin? You know, a couple of weeks ago, I preached on this, the text right before it about lust in the heart, about adultery in the heart, about having pure affections and pure motives. Uh, and, and a group like this, I, I don't doubt that there's some of you who struggle in that area. So I want to ask you a serious question. It's been two weeks. If you struggle with that sin or whatever sin it is that you struggle with that's besetting or causing you to stumble, what have you done in the last two weeks? What drastic measures have you taken in the last two weeks to rid yourself of that sin because it is displeasing to God? God says, be holy for I am holy. The Apostle Peter says that and he quotes from Leviticus. Our desire should be to be holy because God is holy. Not to be legalistic, to to look good in front of other people, uh, to look holy in front of other people. Uh, Our goal should be to be perfect, as Jesus says at the end of this sermon, to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Is that your desire, brothers and sisters? This is your desire not to look holy in front of other people, but is your desire to be holy as God is holy. I pray that's your desire. If it is your desire, friends, we we need to understand how serious sin is and we need to deal with it right away and have a whatever-it-takes attitude to rid ourselves of this sin. We need to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And brothers and sisters, what is the standard for holiness? What is the standard for purity? What is the standard for sin and righteousness? It's not what you see in others. It's not what you think to be good. It is only found in the authoritative word of God. It's not our own pragmatic way of thinking. It's not our Americanized version of Jesus. It is the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus of the Bible. So friends, our approach to life must be to deal with sin quickly, drastically, and without reserve. Well, I want to illustrate this. Turn to Genesis chapter 4, and we see a wonderful illustration that God gives very early in his word. You know the account, Cain kills Abel. Out of jealousy, anger rises up, Cain kills Abel. But before this murder takes place, I want you to look at what the Lord is saying Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 5. 
says, but for Cain and for his offering, God, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. There's a lot there, friends, where God is saying that if he had been obedient, if Cain had been obedient, done the right thing when it came to worship, his countenance would have been lifted up. But since he wasn't obedient and God did not regard his offering, God says sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you but you must master it. Did you know sin desires you? This word in the Hebrew means to long for, and within the context, it means to long for, to take over, to master. But God tells Cain, he must master it. In other words, he must have rule and conquer and have dominion over this sin that is crouching at the door. This was in regards to anger that Cain had, hatred towards his brother and towards God who didn't regard his offering, bitterness, envy, all of that led to Cain killing Abel. Jesus, in our text in Matthew, uses this hyperbole in the context of adultery of the heart. We must be vigilant. Friends, we must be vigilant to guard our heart in this area of sexual immorality. And it's interesting that God uses this terminology that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. You see, that's for all of us a warning that sin is literally crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. And you must master it. That's why you need not to play around with sin. You need not to entertain those types of things. And this is why Jesus is emphasizing that sin starts in the heart. It started in the heart with Cain. And the anger and jealous and envy and bitterness started in the heart. And it came out through the overt killing of his brother Abel. I want to look at another illustration. Turn just a few chapters over to Genesis 39. Genesis chapter 39. I'm going to start reading at verse 6. Here we have Joseph. Um, Verse 6. So he left, this is Potiphar, so he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was a handsome, uh, was handsome in form and appearance and it came after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, With me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in the house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do work, and none of the men of the house was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand, fled, and went outside. Well, we know the rest of the story on how she accused him and he got thrown in jail. But I wanted to show this as an example of what Joseph did by the power of God when he was enticed by the adulterous woman when she caught him by his garment i don't think that was a violent type of caught you get what i'm saying 
I think she was the adulterous woman that Solomon talks about in Proverbs who was trying to entice him and trying to uh, bring him in to have sexual immorality with him. She caught him and was trying to coerce him. And what did he do? He didn't sit around and reason with her. Hey, let me do, let's, let's talk about this. You know, remember when I told you that I shouldn't do this great thing? He didn't even say anything. What did he do? He got out of there. He fled. He ran. That's how serious Joseph was about fleeing the sin that he said would be an evil against God. Friends, we must have the same type of attitude towards sin. We must not try to sit around and and just grunt through it. If and where possible, we need to flee from it. This is why about sexual immorality, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, this is why Paul said to flee immorality, flee sexual perversion, flee the very thing that would entice you into sinning against God as Joseph was in Genesis 39. We need to flee immorality we must not think that we are too good and too strong we're so strong as christians and so good that we uh, we must not think that we're too good to fall in this area of sexual immorality and play with fire and not get burnt as the proverb said we can't think that we're not going to play with fire put it in our lap and not get burnt we have to have this view of sin. And I believe many Christians fail in this area because they simply have a faulty or a shallow view of sin. This leads me to my third point. Because our tendency, because our natural inclination is to just downplay sin, we must be diligent, friends, diligent to reform our view of of sin. Jesus here in his Sermon on the Mount is speaking to an audience that has been negatively affected by pharisaical legalism. Their view of sin was shallow. It was only external. Therefore, they ignored the issues of the heart. And we're like that too, aren't we? We might not be steeped in pharisaical legalism, but don't we have a tendency to downplay the sins of the heart because nobody can see them? Or even downplaying what we call respectable sins, right? Well, we're not committing sexual immorality on the outside. We're not killing people on the outside. We're not stealing. Like, we're, we're, we're good people, right? And so... Our natural inclination is to downplay sins of the heart, issues of the heart, and respectable sins, okay? Like coveting, um, like gluttony, uh, like some of those sins that, you know, nobody can really tell that I'm committing, but nonetheless, God says they are sin. So we have the same inclination as Jesus' audience did uh, to downplay sin to rationalize sin. So therefore, we must be diligent to seek the word of God, to reform our view of sin, and to agree with God on the sinfulness of sin or the seriousness of sin. And friends, the only way to do this, the only way to bring us back to have an accurate view of what sin is and how serious it is, is to be a diligent student of the word to be a diligent student of the word see when we push the bible aside and we don't read it we don't study it we don't pay attention when the sermon is being preached uh, we don't memorize it we don't meditate upon it when we push scripture aside then our natural tendency friends we start to go down the path to rationalize our sin, to not think much of our sin. We must be students of the word. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word have I treasured in my heart 
that I might not sin against you. How many of you have heard that passage before, right? But have you ever thought about it this way? Most people, when they think about that, oh, yes, I want to know God's word so I can know what to do and what not to do, right? Your word have I treasured in my heart so that I know how not to disobey or I know what to do, but think about it this way. This text is not only so that we know his commands by hiding his word in our heart, but so that we can rightly understand the sinfulness and the seriousness of sin. When we treasure God's word in our heart, when we read it, hear it, meditate it, study upon it, then we begin to eternalize and realize and understand how serious those respectable sins are to a holy and righteous God. We must see sin for what it is. And this is why Jesus gives this gruesome picture on how we need to deal with sin because sin is serious, brothers and sisters. It is serious. So what is sin? Well, our catechism gives a good definition. Sin is any want or conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is any want or conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, sin is disobeying what God said not to do or not fully doing what God says to do. That's that old English. Sin is any want of conformity unto the law of God. If you lack, if you're not fully doing what God says to do, that's just as much a sin as doing what God says not to do. So sin is disobeying what God says not to do or not fully doing what God says to do. Sin is committing cosmic treason against the king of the universe, the king who made all things. It's committing cosmic treason against him, the holy and righteous one. It's committing sin against the one who bestowed grace upon grace to you. It's disobeying the one who gave you life and breath. It's the one who provides for your needs, feeds you, clothes you. And the one, if you're in Christ, who bestowed mercy upon you and transferred you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the one whom you've sinned against, the one whom raised you from the dead to made you sit in heavenly places, the one who made you alive together with Christ. He's the one while you were still enemies with him, he reconciled you through the death of his son. When you sin, you sin against the one who suffered under the wrath of Almighty God for the very sin that you just did. The one whom all the hosts of heaven will bow down. The one whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is the one whom you've sinned against. The one who reigns until he makes all his enemies a footstool. The one that if you're in Christ, removed the blinders off your eyes and regenerated your heart. The one whose loving kindness endures forever. The one who promised to leave you or not leave you nor forsake you. The one who will judge everyone according to his righteous standard. And the one who will send unbelievers to everlasting torment. This God who created all things, this is the one whom you've sinned against does it grieve your soul to know that you've sinned against this god we should never make light of sin friends once we go down that path you're on a very very dangerous ground the puritan john owen once said be killing sin or it'll be killing you be killing sin or it'll be killing you he wrote a wonderful book called The Mortification of Sin. I highly recommend it. He gives four ways to see sin for what it is. First, he says, consider the guilt of it. Consider the guilt of it. He says, one of the deceptions of a prevailing lust is to play down its guilt, saying, oh, it's just a little one. It's just a little sin. Though this is bad, it is not as bad as such and such evil. And that which others of the people of God have done, 
Look at what dreadful sins others have fallen into. That's a dangerous ground, he says. Second, consider the danger of it, Owen says. He gives four dangers of sin to consider. One, being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Number two, coming under a great chastisement. If you're a believer in God, God will bring upon a rod of chastisement. Number three, the loss of peace and strength. That's a danger of sin. And number four, the danger of eternal destruction. So to the unbeliever, God is, Jesus is using this parable to show how you need to deal with your sin. Today is the day of salvation. Not wait. Deal with it drastically through repentance and faith. Third, he says, consider the present evils of it. Owen said, sin grieves the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in Christ, Ephesians 4.30, it grieves the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, the Lord Jesus is as wounded afresh from your sin. And number three, it will take away a man's usefulness in his generation. So I highly recommend that work if you haven't read it by John Owen. So to sort of bring this to a close, I want to ask you some reflective questions. First, what sin is crouching at your door that if you do not master it, it will overtake you? Next, do you see sin for what it really is according to the word of God? And next, what measures do you need to take to obey Jesus' command here? about the seriousness of sin. Finally, brothers and sisters, this work can only be done by the Holy Spirit. This work of mortifying your sin, of ridding yourself of sin, can only be done by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.13 is a great parallel text to what Jesus is saying here. The Apostle Paul says, For if by, excuse me, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul is giving a description of the believer. The believer will by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. And an unbeliever is living according to the flesh in unrepentant, habitual sin. And Paul says they must die. He's speaking of the eternal death in hell. But to the believer, sanctification comes with justification. They're not inseparable. If you've been justified, if you've been born again, if you're in Christ, God will sanctify you by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're living according to the flesh, there's no sanctification in your life. There's no fruits of repentance in your life. There's no desire to be conformed to Christ. There's no desire for holiness. Uh, However small that might be, there's no desire for it. It says you must die, meaning you are not saved. This is a Spirit of God work by the Holy Spirit. If you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You need his spirit. You can't do it on your own strength, brothers and sisters. You need his Holy Spirit to rid yourself of your sins. The Holy Spirit is the only means by which we can truly kill sin in your life. Which begs the question, because I know what you're thinking, well, how? Right? Have you ever thought that? I get it, it's the Holy Spirit, but how? What, what am I supposed to do, right? Well, our friend, Mr. Owen, gives us six ways that the Holy Spirit helps in our killing of sin. Number one, he says the Holy Spirit alone can convict you of sin. So that's first and foremost. If you're not saved, the Holy Spirit will not convict your heart of your sin. You might have some guilt, but it will be worldly sorrow not godly sorrow. So the first way the Holy Spirit helps you to kill sin is by convicting you of sin. Number two, the Holy Spirit alone reveals to us 
the fullness of Christ for our relief. You catch that? The Holy Spirit alone reveals to us the fullness of Christ for our relief. And he says, this guards our heart from false ways and from despair. In other words, the Holy Spirit only shows us that the only relief of our sin is to flee to Christ. That's the Holy Spirit work. That's how he uses the Holy Spirit to sanctify you. Number three, the Holy Spirit alone establishes the heart in the expectation of relief from Christ. The Holy Spirit works in your heart so that you would have faith that Christ is and will help you to kill your besetting sins. Number four, the Holy Spirit alone brings the cross of Christ into our hearts with its sin-killing power. Meaning the Holy Spirit brings the work of Christ in our hearts, which enables us to obey the word of God and to kill our sin. Number five, the Holy Spirit alone is the author and the finisher of our sanctification. He gives us new influences of grace. He gives us new supplies of grace, Owen says, uh, for holiness when we commit to kill sin in our lives. The final way the Holy Spirit aids in our killing of sin, he says all our souls Prayers to God in our need are supported by the Holy Spirit. God promises to enable us to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit to help our times of weakness, to help in our infirmities. So I want to close by asking you, does this resonate with you? Do these words pierce your heart? If this does not resonate with you, if you still could kind of care less about disobeying God's word or not fully uh, obeying his word, I fear for your soul. I fear you may not even be saved. And my admonition to you is to seek the Lord. If you're in that place where you could sort of not really care about sinning and uh, even you young folks, if if you don't really have godly sorrow or or godly ambition to uh, obey and honor your parents and to live uh, a life with a pure heart, uh, now is the time. Uh, Don't ignore it. Now is the time to seek the Lord while he may be found. Uh, It says, call upon his name. Uh, You have sinned, friend. You are a sinner and your entire life outside of Christ is an abomination to God. Yet there's hope. You can escape the future torments of hell where Jesus said in the uh, other account of the hyperbole where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That is a reality, friends. And if you're not in Christ, if you have no desire to mortify the sin in your life, then I implore you to seek the Lord while he may be found. And for those who are this does resonate with you. You, you say, yes, I, I want to rid myself of this sin I have, uh, this respectable sin that I have, I've ignored, this sin in my heart that I've hid from those around me, but, but the Lord has revealed that to you. You, you, you understand that it's a, it's a sin that you've tried to rid yourself from and, and you keep failing. Uh, one of the things I want to do is encourage you that when God allows you to fail in that sin time and time and time again, uh, many times it's, it's, he pulls back his grace. He lets you fail so that by the work of the Holy Spirit, you realize, you realize how much you need him. You realize how much you need him and you realize the sinfulness of your own sin. So even that is a work of grace. So I want to encourage you that God will do the work of sanctification. And I want to encourage you to believe that Christ is and will help you conquer the sin in your life. And stop trusting in yourself. The more you realize that you can't do it in and of yourself, the further along the Holy Spirit can work so that He will get the glory 
so that when you conquer that besetting sin, you have nothing to boast about because you realize it wasn't you, but it was the Spirit of God. It was God working in your life. So stop trusting in yourself and look to Christ. Look to the Holy Spirit and preach the gospel to yourself daily. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. May we be a people that the world sees as different, as unique, as holy, as blameless, as unwavering from the truth of God. May we be reviled not for our bad behavior, but may we be reviled for our purity of doctrine. May we be reviled for our our purity of heart. May we be reviled for standing upon the purity of the word of God, not for our hypocrisy, for the gospel and not our wicked behavior. May we reflect the very love and holiness of, of Christ, so that God can use our lives to be light in the world and salt in the world, so that we can then take our holiness, not in a way to boast because it's not us, but we take our lives and people see the difference. They see a person who used to complain about everything, and now they're walking in joy. They see a person who used to be bitter about everything and and backbite everyone at work but now they're different they're joyful they don't respond in an ill way they they still show love and grace when they're reviled let us be those people because god will use that to open up a door for the gospel so that you can share with them the very words of truth and at the end of the day may christ and christ alone be glorified amen amen let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for your word. We thank you, God, that your word is true. Lord, we thank you that your word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce the very marrow, the very joints. God, it's able to pierce our heart. And Father, as this verse and the doctrine of sin has pierced uh, my heart, Lord, I pray that you would use it to pierce your people's hearts God, so that we would seek to mortify the flesh, that we would seek, God, to not trust in ourselves anymore, God, but to trust upon Christ, not only for our justification, but for our sanctification. And Lord, for those who are not in Christ, I I pray you would use this word, God, to pierce their hearts, to use the law of God, uh, to show them how, how far away they are, Lord, from it, and that it would be a tutor, to lead them to Christ. Father, we thank you because you paid for our sins upon the cross. You took upon the wrath of God. Lord, when we do sin because we know we will stumble, help us, God, to look to Christ. Help us, God, to realize that our sin was laid upon the cross, that it would motivate us, God, to rid ourselves of the sin We need your grace, God, to do it. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.